Cultivation of the Wild Woman podcast, a book study of women who run with the wolves, written by Clarissa Pinkola Estes, recorded and edited by Rachel Prenn and Ben Landis. Cultivation of the Wild Woman podcast will help you gain wisdom in your own intuition through learning about the wild woman archetype. In each episode, we'll cover a distilled version of each chapter. We'll hear stories that have stood the test of time, an analysis of these stories through the lens of Jungian psychology and how this translates to the modern young woman. story. Welcome to episode five of the Cultivation of the Wild Woman podcast. My name is Ben. And I'm Rachel. Today we're covering chapter four, the mate, union with the other, in our book study of Women Who Run With the Wolves by Clarissa Piccola Estes. We're going to begin this chapter with the story. It is called Manawi. There was a man who came to court two sisters who were twins. But their father said, You may not have them in marriage until or unless you can guess their names. Manawi guessed and guessed, but he could not guess the names of the sisters. The young woman's father shook his head and sent Manawi away time after time. One day, Manawi took his little dog with him on a guessing visit, and the dog saw that one sister was prettier than the other, and the other sister was sweeter than the other. Though neither sister possessed all virtues, the little dog liked them very much, for they gave him treats and smiled into his eyes. Manawi failed to guess the names of the young women again that day, and trudged home. But the little dog ran back to the hut of the young women. There he poked his ear under one of the side walls and heard the women giggling about how handsome and manly Manawe was. The sisters, as they spoke, called each other by name, and the little dog heard, and ran as fast as he could back to his master to tell him. But on the way, a lion had left a big bone with meat on it near the path and the tiny dog smelled it immediately, and without another thought, he veered off into the brush, dragging the bone. There he happily licked and snapped at the bone, till all the flavor was gone. Oh, the tiny dog suddenly remembered the forgotten task, but unfortunately he had also forgotten the names of the young women as well. So back he ran to the twin sisters, a second time, and this time it was night, and the young women were oiling each other's arms and legs, 
and readying themselves as though for a celebration. Again the little dog heard them call each other by name. He hopped up in the air in a fit of delight and was racing back down the path to the hut of Manawi from, when from the brush came the smell of fresh nutmeg. Now there was nothing the little dog loved more than nutmeg. So he took a quick turn off the path and sped to where a lovely kumquat pie sat cooling on a log. Well, soon the pie was all gone, and the little dog had lovely nutmeg breath. As he trotted home with a very full belly, he tried to think of the young women's names, but again he had forgotten them. So finally the little dog raced back to the sister's hut again, and this time the sisters were readying themselves to be wed. Oh no, thought the little dog, there's hardly time left. And when the sisters called each other by name, the little dog put the names into his mind and sped away. Absolutely and resolutely determined that nothing would stop him from delivering the precious two names to Manawi right away. The little dog spied some small, fresh kill on the trail, but ignored it and vaulted over it. The little dog, for a moment, thought he smelled a curl of nutmeg on the air, but he ignored it and instead ran and ran toward the home and his master. But the little dog did not plan for a dark stranger to leap out of the bush and grab him by the neck and shake him so hard that his tail almost fell off. For that is what happened. And all the while, the stranger shouted, Tell me those names. What are the names of the young women so I may win them? The little dog thought he himself would faint from the tight fist about his neck. But he fought bravely. He growled, he scratched, he kicked, and finally bit the giant stranger between the fingers. And the little dog's teeth stung like wasps. The stranger bellowed like a water buffalo. But the little dog would not let go. The stranger ran off into the bush with the little dog dangling from his hind. Let go, let go, let go of me, little dog, and I will let you go, pleaded the stranger. And the little dog snarled between its teeth. Do not come back, or you won't see morning ever again. And so the stranger escaped into the bush, moaning and holding his hand as he ran and the little dog proceeded to half-hobble and half-run down the path to Manawi. Even though his pelt was bloody and his jaws ached, the names of the young woman were clear in his mind, and he limped up to Manawi beaming. Manawi gently washed the little dog's wounds, and the little dog told him the whole story and the two names of the young woman as well. Manawi raced back to the village of the young woman with the little dog on his shoulders riding high, the dog's ears flying like two horsetails. When Manawi reached the father with the names of his daughters, the twin sisters received Manawi completely dressed to journey with him. They had been waiting for him all along. That is how Manawi won two of the most beautiful maidens of the Riverland, and all four, the sisters, Manawi and the little dog, lived in peace together. For a long time to come. Crick, crack, kraut. Now this story's out. Crick, crack, croon. Now this story's done.
This story speaks about the mystery of two powerful feminine forces within a single woman. Understanding this dual nature in women sometimes causes men, and even women themselves, to close their eyes and hail heaven for help. The paradox of women's twin nature is that when one side is more cool and feeling tone, the other side is more hot. These two women, who are one, are separate but conjoined elements, which combine in the psyche in thousands of ways. The Power of Two We are strong when we stand with another soul. When we are with others, we cannot be broken. Likewise, when both sides of the dual nature are held close together in consciousness, they have tremendous power and cannot be broken. The loss of women's psychological, emotional, and spiritual powers comes from separating these two natures from one another and pretending one or the other no longer exists. The Manawi man has his own dual nature a human nature, and an instinctive nature, as symbolized by the dog. His human nature, while sweet and loving, is not enough to win the courtship. It is his dog, a symbol of his instinctual nature, that has the ability to creep near the women and, with keen listening, hear their names. It is the dog that learns to overcome superficial seductions and retain the most important knowings. It is Manawi's dog that has sharp hearing and tenacity, that has the instincts to burrow under walls and to find, to chase, and to retrieve valuable ideas. Interesting. So now we're kind of getting into... Uh, Not necessarily the uh, feminine nature here, but where it's it's to me I kind of see that by understanding this masculine kind of uh, desire to know the partner, desire to understand the woman as being valuable, I think helps me see how the wild woman needs to be understood. She needs to be known. She's not um, self-evident. She's not obvious. Mm -hmm. She's kind of a mystery. She's, you know, there's there's the walls that got to be kind of gotten around, and it's not just going to be a, a very simple process to understand the wild woman, especially mm -hmm. for the mate, for the partner. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, these sort of traits of, <laughs> it's funny because the dog has sharp hearing, so he's a good listener, mm. but he also, it's not, it's not enough to just hear, you also have to retain, you have to know, and you can't just listen, like you can't just go one in ear and out the other. Mm. because he forgets so he's like he's supposed to know the, their names he's supposed to understand who they are 
and it's not something that was as soon as you hear it once you're you're done it's more of like you it's important to understand who these women are because to me knowing their name is like that means you know their essence you know who they are mm -hmm. and you've you've understood what they are as as beings and he loses it though like he forgets mm -hmm. he gets distracted and so then he like is it takes more than just being a keen listener it also takes a sort of a meditation like mm -hmm. he has to focus he has to remember their names he can't do other mm -hmm. things and just let it slip so it's not a one and done challenge it's a it's calling you it's calling men to listen and but also to remember and to hold it's interesting how the dog solves the problem because it's not um it's it's not like oh, the dog goes and asks the sisters or something, but he just goes and kind of spies on them. Mm -hmm. And um, I was thinking about how it kind of reminds me how with relationships, a lot of times the guys, it's kind of a stereotypical thing where the guys are like, I don't know what she wants. And... Uh, I can't read her. Yeah. I and, don't know. And, and, the, and they just want the women to tell them. Yeah. And they don't want to have to... Uh, they don't want to have to do the work of, mm -hmm. of paying attention to the small things and or putting it together. Listening. Or actually Or even, yeah. When you were talking about that, it made me think of conversations I've had with men where they think you're... I can tell there's a judgment that I'm being overly emotional or... I shouldn't care about whatever I'm talking about, but I need to, you know, express it and go over it. Even if it isn't fully healthy to be talking about it, that's my destiny. And I, I will learn that, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't gossip about people, you know, or if it is a truly negative thing. But for men, I think it's still important that you have to listen. And when they don't listen and you, you women test you, because they can tell you're not listening, mm -hmm. then you lose the opportunity to meet the wild feminine because you're not respecting her. You're not, you're gonna not get. Even, you're not going to get the twin sisters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're not going to get... You're going to get the one bitchy one now because you pissed her off <laughs> and you didn't listen. Yeah. So even if she was being bitchy, well, now you've just created the prophecy that you will only meet the bitch because you aren't willing to... Also, I think it's men have to be vulnerable to listen. Mm -hmm. I think it brings up a lot of things in them that they, like, don't... They don't look at their emotional side. So then when women are and expressing that, then they're like, this is foreign. This is, I don't want to talk about periods. I don't want to know how uncomfortable you are. <laughs> that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. And women are like, uh, excuse me, do you hear yourself? <laughs> I think it can happen both ways, but... Oh, yeah, of course. But I think it is traditionally and stereotypically a male thing to not be paying attention mm -hmm. to parts of how women communicate, how they 
they give you a lot of hints and cues that are not verbal. So even though the dog hears the name, it's not the it's not the women telling the the dog or telling like why can't uh why can't they just tell the guy um Manawi, why can't they just tell him their names? Why is this some sort of test? Hmm. And um I was thinking like it proves your ability to not need to be told because there's a lot of things that are going to happen between you in a relationship Mm -hmm. and if everything a woman communicates needs to be explicit needs to be like laid out for you verbally or you're just not going to accept the consequences then you're you're actually going to make it a harder time for yourself mm-hmm. as a man. If you expect a woman to be conscious of every single thing and articulate it to you, so just serve it up on a platter. That's yeah. so much intellectual yeah. labor. That's so much work to do that you're going to create, if you expect that, you're going to drive her crazy and then you're both, like, she's going to be mad at you because mm-hmm. she has to do all this shitty work that you should be doing. Mm-hmm. Like, you, it's pretty easy once you accept that you, that everything is important about someone's communication, their body language, their, uh, like, you, it, you have to put things together. If, mm-hmm. you're, if you're not paying attention, like, I always, I think in my mind, it's the classic... The dude's playing a video game, and the girl says something, and he doesn't even, like, look away from his video game and tries to... Yeah, sure, dinner at six, and then... Yeah, or whatever. Six, ten like... rolls around, and <laughs> she's pissed as, as fuck sitting over there, and he's like, what? Yeah. You didn't actually take that input and store it, it just went out the other year. Yeah. You went and you, you ran into some nutmeg pie, some kumquat, or what was yep. it? Kumquat? Yeah, with nutmeg. Pie? With nutmeg? It sounds delicious. What is a kumquat? Uh, is it fruit? Some sort of vegetable. Oh, I think it's a vegetable. Huh. <laughs> Never had it? No idea, really. No idea. It's a fun word. But, yeah, you're. it's like the distracted boy who just doesn't want to pay attention to things. And, uh... It definitely is a boy kind of attitude of, like, being distracted or not wanting to pay attention. I remember it being like that. And it's hard to kind of get beyond it and um, realize that, like, a lot of things that you don't think are important are actually important. Mm -hmm. And so once you just open up, Once a man opens up to that idea that, okay, emotions are information. Mm -hmm. They're not, don't necessarily take it personally. Don't necessarily make assumptions off her emotions. Because I think guys try to do that a lot. Where as soon as something happens, they're looking for the future. They're like, what's next? What do we need to do about it? What do we need Mm -hmm. to, like, uh, how is this going to affect the near future right mm-hmm. so they they they're not willing to be present with the emotion maybe because it's maybe a negative emotion 
or maybe it's an uncomfortable emotion. So they don't want to actually stay in the present. Mm -hmm. They don't want to stay in the moment. And they don't want her to stay in the moment either because then they'll have to stay in the moment. They don't want to. So mm -hmm. they're like, okay, well, let's just... Let's just move on already. And the problem with that is if you don't stay in the moment and sit with something, especially emotions, emotions aren't, don't really work the same way logic works. Logic, the way logic works is like, okay, we know this and then this and then this and then this and you can like keep going with it, right? Whereas emotions are very nonlinear, very horizontal and kind of spread mm -hmm. out and they they don't follow some path that you can predict. So you actually have to just sit with emotions for a while and see where they go. You can't try to rush them off into the, you know, the next thing. Try to, but once I think you learn to do that, then it's actually pretty easy mm -hmm. because you just accepted that you're going to be uncomfortable sometimes and that's okay. And then you're not uncomfortable because once you're aware that it's going to be like that, you're not, your expectations aren't going to be wrong. Your expectations will be accurate. As in other fairy tales, masculine forces can carry Bluebeard-like or murderous Mr. Fox sorts of energy and thereby attempt to demolish the dual nature of women. That sort of suitor cannot tolerate duality and is looking for perfection. To have a Manawi-type lover, both within and without, he is a much better suitor, for he is intensely devoted to the idea of the two, and the power of the two is in acting as one integral entity. And that makes me think of the last episode when we were talking about like not using people uh, and that like some relationships I think they're like ooh I can use this person to get sex and attention and maybe even money or food or whatever it is you're after but on the flip side you could see it as like you're a team you're a duo that can work together and literally procreate and, and also create things out in the physical world and so I think this story is really important because it helps support the idea of two becoming one even if that's inside yourself that we all have multiple personalities and so in being able to embrace those and they're usually dual right if you have one personality that's hot you're usually gonna have one that's cold and so learning that about yourself and embracing it instead of Ignoring it, yeah, or labeling it even negatively. I think that's another thing that people can have happen, especially when they go into like therapy. Is the biggest thing I've heard about therapy and why some people disagree is that then you get labeled when you go in there that oh you have ADHD, oh you have OCD, or some kind of personality disorder, right? And then people identify with that, and when they identify with that because they identify with themselves negatively, they identify with that negatively. So it's like manifesting another vicious cycle of misunderstanding of themselves. But I think labels are important to help you learn about yourself and put a name to things. Right. So if a label is triggering for you, well then 
that's a place that maybe you should go and dig deeper and hmm, why does this trigger me? What what feelings does that make me have and what, what comes up? Right. So labels like all these jargon that we we learn in this book, to me they're really useful because then it helps me understand that part of me instead of labeling it and thinking that that's a part of me that shouldn't be there. We're labeling it and being like, that's what's there. Not yeah. even that it should be there, but it's there. Right. It's not, it's not a part, uh, like there's no parts of you that should be removed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because... If you think if you if you think that way, then you're not accepting your fate. You're not mm-hmm. accepting who you are. You're not accepting your circumstances. And if you don't accept those, then you can't make changes. You can't control your own destiny. Mm-hmm. So if you try to reject any part of you, you end up just being a slave to circumstance because you're not willing to incorporate parts of your shadow or whatever it is or. Mm-hmm. You're afraid of a label. And a lot of people won't even get help because they actually don't want to be labeled. They don't yeah. want to be diagnosed. And they, they think that somehow they can get away with it. But, like, if you have diabetes and you don't get diagnosed, you still have diabetes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you don't have... If you have a personality problem and you don't get diagnosed, you still have it. Mm-hmm. You just don't know what it is, and you can't really do anything about it because you're you're always keeping it in the shadows where it's unknown and unknowable. And I think this story is really about knowing and 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 accepting mm-hmm. um, knowledge and uh, the risk that goes with that. Like the dog could just be sitting at home in the fireplace, uh, in front of the fireplace, in the fireplace. <laughs> A little too hot in there. Yeah. The dog could just be chilling at home doing nothing. But instead, he's out there risking his life. He's out there uh, going on the path. And there's strangers on the path. He almost dies. It's messed up pretty bad. But it's because knowledge is not risk-free. Mm-hmm. And what you're saying about the acceptance. We talked about that maybe three episodes ago when we... We're in Death Valley, and I brought up Tara Brock and how she has uses the RAIN model of, like, becoming aware and then accepting. And that reminded me of that part of acceptance. She explained it, how you were saying that to label yourself as that shouldn't be a part of me or I shouldn't have had that experience or I shouldn't have felt that way or I shouldn't have had that thought is to then say to yourself that something's wrong with me and something needs to change and like you were saying that that's not accepting your destiny and who you are and labeling that as useless is makes me feel like a sense of guilt because guilt is like life that was not lived to its full capacity so it's kind of a trap that if you don't talk about it and you repress it yeah well Jung, there's actually a pretty good quote about this from Jung himself which he said that 
if you don't make the unconscious conscious, then you'll be ruled by the unconscious. Ah, yeah. Yeah, and we had a quote like that in that episode as well about, like, whatever you don't embrace that becomes you because... Whatever you don't bring out can destroy you. Mm -hmm. And what you do bring out can make you thrive. So you have to... It's just a calling to gain more knowledge, gain more self-knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, and the idea for, for how to do that is that you need to understand and put order to the chaotic unconscious. Mm-hmm. And it's a lifelong process. And you're constantly going to be finding new things, and maybe they scare you. Maybe they're painful. Probably. Probably. Most likely. It's usually how it goes. The power of name. To know a person's true name means to know the life path and the soul attributes of that person. To know the names means to gain and retain consciousness about the dual nature. We name these dual temperaments in ourselves in order to Marry ego to spirit. This naming and marrying is called, in human words, self-love. When it occurs between the two individual persons, it is called loving another. Women often crave a mate who has this kind of endurance and the wit to continue trying to understand her deep nature. When she finds a mate of this substance... She will give lifelong loyalty and love. So a big theme I see our culture learning after last year, the year of awakening, the year of healing for 2018, was when you awaken, you're finally being, you're listening to whatever's bubbling up and whatever's happening. And then as soon as that initiates then you're beginning to, like she says, marry the ego to the spirit because then you can start incorporating it into who you are and accepting it. And then when you accept it, then it moves into self-love because, okay, a part of me is that I'm scared to swim in open water like the ocean. If I accept that part of myself instead of denying it, if I deny it and repress it, then I, I don't have a value system. But if I accept it and know that that's part of me, then I can make goals and adjustments to tend to that self-love of, like, why would I have fear of open water? Is it maybe an ancestral reason? Like, maybe someone in the past lives has died on the open water, so it's fine to think that, you know, it's not the safest place, because it's not. So that's an example of how a little thing like your uncomfortability can teach you more about yourself and give you more self-love, which I think is the paradox that a lot of people learn is that how can something uncomfortable then once I embrace it make me feel more comfortable about myself right because that doesn't seem very intuitive in the beginning like what it would make me more confident myself to embrace what I'm uncomfortable with right yes it will yeah because it's like you're telling someone hey go close to that cliff And uh, that's supposed to make you safer? Well, kind of, because 
when you get close to the cliff, you can see more. Mm-hmm. And you can, maybe there's something down there that is uh, valuable. Mm-hmm. Maybe not, but maybe there is. So you're, if you stay too far from the cliff edge and you never are willing to face your fear and look over, then you're, you might be missing a lot of good in the world. If you're, if you're always, mm-hmm. if you're always, you know, avoiding that confrontation with fear, then you miss out on the golden nuggets. And that made me think of the shows and movies I've watched over the years of people achieving great things like climbing a mountain or going on a voyage out in the sea or usually those moments of when they're at the very top on the very edge, and they're usually completely alone or with whomever they came with, but, you know, if they fell, like, no one's going to be able to pick up their phone and call someone for help. You're out in the middle of nowhere. And so that image of these people who are explorers going to their edge of mountains or the edge of the ocean, meaning the middle of nowhere, and even space... I think those are good inspirations to help encourage yourself to embrace this is like surround yourself with people who are doing those kinds of things of self-acceptance and self-exploration that you want. The more you see that energy being expressed, the more likely you're going to do it. Right. And so I think I'm really excited for content this year because now that it's been the year of healing, this is the year of thriving Yeah. is my assumption. And what I've seen from the energy that this January seems to be a very, like, intense time. A lot of anxiety and insomnia because we have so much work to do this year. And we're all very, it's exciting, honestly. But that's, that makes it even more intense, the fact that it's exciting work to do. Yeah. Because that's even more pressure because we're, this year we're all going to get so much closer to our highest self. That that is a very scary step to be taking instead of maybe in the past few years where we were taking steps backwards not really but we were doing things that were self-sabotaging and not leading us to our highest self but now that we've gotten more aligned and we know what we need to do right we all I bet we we all have better instincts compared to today from a year ago right that today we have better instincts on what path we're on and what we need to be doing to continue on this path towards our highest self. Yeah. And that can be very overwhelming. Well, because it's more comfortable when you don't have to pursue your highest self because mm-hmm. the way I think about it is when you when you just get to do kind of bare minimum and uh not really pursue your highest goals and your your dreams. Mhm then they can stay dreams. They can mm-hmm. just stay these nice, warm, cozy fantasies of, you know. And where anything's possible. Yeah. Too. Oh, I could do anything. Because in reality, because I mean, you can do anything, but you do meet the resistance of the universe. Like, we do want to go to Mars with humans. You could but do it. But we still haven't done it because well, there's resistance. Yeah. So we all have the fantasy of doing it, but we haven't done it yet. You Good can enough. do anything. Yeah. But you can't do everything. So you actually have to narrow your horizons mm-hmm. in order to, to get anything done. Because you can't do everything. So once you 
start climbing the, like, once you start putting effort into your dreams, it gets real, real quick. Mm -hmm. You're like, whoa, okay. Now, if I fail, I'm failing at my dreams. Before, I was failing, (laughs) but, you know, I was just shitty job or uh, shitty relationships and mm-hmm. or I was just zoning out all the time and just eating and and having a bunch of like small things keep me going day to day mm-hmm. now it's like okay I have a strategy for this entire year so there's just a lot more on the line which then makes people a little more excited because wow my dreams are gonna I'm actually taking steps toward my dreams but then it's also like, oh shit, I'm taking steps toward my dreams. What was that audiobook we listened to about the fisherman? The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Yes. When he caught the really big fish and the and he knew it was heavy and the biggest fish he he had ever gotten a line because it was so tense. Yeah. And so it was dragging the boat. Mm-hmm. And he knew that if he wasn't careful he could snap the line and loose the fish. And so I feel like that's where we're all at, like that we've caught our big fit we're all on different parts of our hero's journey right but we're all at one stage of that fishing like we've cast our line and it's down there we finally caught this big fish and you can feel the tension of like your your fantasy is down there that fish right you haven't seen it yet but you could fantasize about how big it was and he talked about that in the story where he didn't get this fish for like a couple days it stayed on the line and he patiently waited for the opportunity to get him and he was fantasizing and thinking of like what does this fish look like like how big is it what kind of fish is it so that's kind of our dreams we're like how are they going to manifest how is it going to look like what is it going to look like when it comes above the surface of the water Mm -hmm. and that story is even great symbolism of the the water is the unconscious it's the Mm -hmm. second chakra where things are kind of flipped upside down there and so that fish that is your fantasy your dream your goal your drishti your life purpose that you're ringing up on your line and he hadn't caught a fish in like over 80 days or something Mm -hmm. and now we got the biggest one ever Mm -hmm. and it's on the line and he's holding it and the lines you know cutting into his hands and stuff and that's how we're at i think right now in january it's like we just hooked it and now the work has to be done yeah it's just the beginning of that story the year of awakening we knew that we were fishing. We finally awoke to the fact that you're in a boat and you were fishing and now you've gotten the right technique and your eyes are wide open and you're awake and you finally cast your line in the right area and you've been meditating and and intentful with what you're doing. Now you've got what you asked for and now you have to finish off the manifestation to make it real, which I think is the work of these this next year but also the next like five or so years where yeah. in Taurus, which is like the bowl, which is this very, reminds me of the dog. It has a target and it's mm-hmm. going to retrieve it because the dog is very like focused and intentful. Unless there's kumquat pie. Yes. Which I looked up, they were oranges, but I don't think dogs like oranges. Well, he liked the nutmeg. I, I just have to try this pie. Figure out. <laughs> Women often crave a mate who has this kind of endurance and the wit 
to continue trying to understand her deep nature. When she finds a mate of that substance, she will give lifelong loyalty and love. And I was, this is really interesting because I was like, oh man, we don't see that anymore. People are now talking about how, oh, you know, no one's really going to be lifelong partners anymore. That's just an old thing that Mm -hmm. just doesn't work nowadays. It's just, you know, we're all, we just changed now. Society's different. We're evolving humans, okay? We weren't meant for monogamy. Yeah, we evolved and it's it's just not going to be part of our lives now. And I'm curious because I wonder if people really feel that way or if it's just where most people are so sick that it's kind of maybe a a um, cynical attitude because of how sick we are because of how unhealthy everyone is mentally and physically mm-hmm. that this might be one of the first things to go because a lifelong loyalty is self-sacrifice on certain things. You can't just always give in to your selfish desires in the mm-hmm. moment. It's more like, can you imagine a whole life together and then can you make that work? That's a lot of work. And where she says that you have to have wit to continue trying, I think is a really pivotal part that some men, when women are being emotional or or perceived over-emotional, they don't have wit for seeing this woman sobbing or just having a hard time or a rough day. They take it seriously instead of being like... I mean, I'm not saying laugh at her, but I'm saying, like, have compassion and a light-heartedness about the situation and see where the wit is and and embody that light-heartedness, which I think is in wit, that men need to usually... I see in our relationship that you're usually there for me when I'm not when I'm not exactly to my highest self and I'm a little irritable or irritated that you keep your light shining and you keep your wit and that glow and that essence of ease and lightheartedness and not taking life too seriously instead of people who I've seen in the past who would mirror me and take life seriously like I am, and then that just makes the problem a vicious cycle. <laughs> Instead of you stopping it with like, oh, huh, why isn't he irritated that that person cut us off or that like, that I'm in pain or uncomfortable? And it makes me stop instead of continue that negative cycle. I literally think of a battery of like, if you're shelling and sheltering your own energy and keeping it positive within, within you, and so when I have this not-so-positive energy and I'm trying to project it onto you, that by stopping that and staying with wit, the light, then it allows me to see the light in you and then in myself instead of you accepting my negativity and then feeding me that negativity. Mm. Which I see in a lot of couples where the, the man thinks that he's supposed to listen to whatever the woman says and then that means to, like, be like a puppy and not like a dog. Where a dog would... When you look at, like, dogs that have been trained with their owners that are very intelligent, they sit up tall. They listen. They look right at their owner when they're, like, waiting for instructions. 
a puppy is running around and can get scared and frazzled and distracted very quickly. So, I don't know what I was going to do with that part there. We need men to be well-trained dogs, is what you're saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's... Because uh, if you're a puppy... Yeah. And I'm just... To, and women are the cat element, right? They're literally catty. And... Cats hate... Puppies. Most of the, most of the oh. cats I've seen hate puppies because they're, like, trying to lick their face and, like, mm -hmm. they don't understand boundaries and they don't understand social cues at all. Whereas a, a large, well-trained dog is very chill. The yeah. cat will go and cuddle with it because it knows it's not going to hop up all of a sudden and sit on it. Right. Like a puppy would. Yeah. So that's how men and women can work together is women are the felines, the cats. Men are the dogs who are the retrievers. And you have to balance them so that they're not, like, feeding each other negative energy or irritating one another. Yeah. Which I think is another thing about relationships is, like, for years I was thinking about why do, why do people say opposites attract each other? It's how it balances one another. That I'm very emotional and I wear my heart on my sleeve where you don't and you don't care about... You don't take things personally ever where I'm the very opposite so that can help balance us even though we're not the same we can still communicate still get along yeah i think we i like what you're saying about how there's part of listening to a woman is not agreeing that that's not what it mm -hmm. is it's not what she's saying yeah that's not how it works it's not agree and amplify their emotions. It's listen to their emotions. Mm -hmm. Because if you... Listening implies perceiving. It implies even judgment. Mm -hmm. Because when you listen, and you listen carefully, and you pay attention, then you're also categorizing things. You're also kind of... you're Just by hearing someone, you automatically start filtering what they're saying and you start getting emotions and if you listen carefully then you can get very nuanced emotions yourself and I think that is what I always am true to I'm not trying to give you back your emotions I listen and then I give you my emotions from what you've just told me mm -hmm. and then you can say well uh, uh, no no that's not what I was trying to say you know it, uh, if you like if you get some feedback from me that doesn't make sense to you then you can if it's honest feedback then you can actually make adjustments and be more clear and get exactly what you need said said but if I just mimic your emotional state because it's easier to do that than to think and listen for myself and then come up with some valid feedback or some valid doesn't even have to be feedback but just instead of mimicking you and copying your energy I give you the truth of my energy hmm. which is more I think more valuable mm -hmm. like you were saying how if you're if you have a negative attitude and you share that with me I don't instantly adopt the same attitude. 
I may have a different attitude about it. I may be laughing at that subject that you're you're not, and then you might understand how uh, you could laugh at it instead of take it seriously, mm-hmm. because you see how I did it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you uh, maybe I do take it seriously. It's it's not always the I'm not always the opposite of you. Sometimes we think the same exact thing about something and we take it seriously mm-hmm. together. But I'm not just a, I'm not just mimicking. I'm not just this echo chamber for you. I'm myself. I'm a full person. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of guys think they can get away with pretending to be listening by just mimicking. Or like as soon as your wife complains about something, complain about it with her or whatever, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like just... They always just want to be on her side, but then uh, I think people who always want to be on your side aren't really helping you. Mm-hmm. If they're always just wanting to validate everything that you think or say or feel, then it's uh, it's like, what are they there for? Mm-hmm. Just to tell me that I'm right all the time about everything? And that I should be freaking out about everything, or whatever. The father of the two sisters says, Wait, until you convince me you are interested in really knowing about the true essence, the true names, you may not have my daughters. The father is saying, You can't have understanding of women's mysteries just for the asking. You must do the work first. You must endure in pursuing this matter. You must divine yourself even closer to the real truth of this female soul puzzle. This endeavor, which is both descent and riddle. The Tenacious Dog Nature The mystical feminine readily understands and accepts the instinctual nature of the dog. Dogs represent, among other things, he or she who loves from the heart easily and long, who forgives effortlessly, who can run long and fight, if necessary, to the death. In the world of archetypes, the dog nature is both psychopomp messenger between the topside world and the dark-lit world, and chthonic, that of the darker or farther back regions of the psyche, that which has been called the underworld for eons. It is this nature that is able to know the will nature in women. So the dog represents that I think of the dog at um, the gates of Hades, the three-headed dog, who kind of, again, is the, he's, he's the gatekeeper of the underworld. Hmm. And uh, the same thing with the, you know, in Harry Potter, the three-headed dog. That's, what I was that's, that's the dog from Hades, basically. She, she's using that. Um, and it's, it's the, 
this kind of representation of being two worlds of conscious and unconscious or the upper world or the underworld and being able to go there and participate in the underworld is proof that you're going to accept and understand the woman. So it's basically men have to be enlightened in order to be good partners. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty obvious, but uh, still needs to be said because we're all still working on it. Creeping seductive appetite. It is not by accident that men and women struggle to find deeper sides of their natures, and yet become distracted for any number of reasons, mostly pleasures of various sorts. Some become addicted to those pleasures and stay forever, entangled there, and never continue with their work. Young remarked that some control must be placed on human appetite. The distractions of appetite interfere with the primary process. So there are many bones on the road. Juicy, nice, interesting, savagely exciting bones. But somehow they cause us to be carried off into an amnesia. To not only forget where we are in the work, but to forget what the work was to begin with. Too much, or even a little bit of a good thing, at the wrong time, can cause a gross loss of consciousness. And that last bit of the quote makes me think of, in Ayurveda, how one man's medicine is another man's poison. Yeah. That in our American culture, I feel like we're going to learn that the hard way through experience of... Not everybody can be given the same supplements or the same diet or even the same lifestyle. And that even though one thing might have helped one patient, that won't necessarily help another. And in fact, it could really hurt another. And I've seen that personally, like being on supplements and it was like a B complex. And then I come to find out that one of the nutrients... I have a gene that won't absorb it unless it's a certain kind of construction of the vitamin. And so instead of my body absorbing that nutrient and being able to use it, it was building up a toxin that it had to throw out and get rid of. So something that was labeled as good was actually toxic to me. And so I think part of this self-exploration or individuation process as being able to go places and knowing what you need to order to satiate your gut, knowing what you need to go get done at the doctor's office to make you feel whole, knowing what you need to do in the morning as your practice meditation to make you feel one with yourself, that you need to learn what is your toxins and then what are your remedies to heal and not relying on others to give you a prescription. And you could get this prescription from friends, from family, from actual doctors, or the internet, or people you idolize, where, oh, they do this and that works for them. I'm going to go and apply that to mine and then I'll feel like them. 
and instead doing the deep work of, hmm, okay, I want to try out this celery juice thing that everyone's doing and see how I feel when I do it and and not just do it to do it so that you're a part of the club, but do it for yourself. Do it to learn about yourself. So go into things like, I don't know if this celery juice is going to be good for my body or not, but I have the intention that I will find out if it is good or not. And I think a lot of people try to dismiss that that last leg of work where they say, I've already decided it's good for me. You right. haven't tried it yet. Yeah, but I've decided that I've thought about it enough and it is good for me. But you haven't done it yet. How do you know? Well, I just know. I'm a god. Oh, okay. <laughs> so learning what's a toxin to you, but also then what's your elixir? What do you need? And what do you need yeah. in this moment? Don't even compare yourself to who you were yesterday or a year ago or ten years ago. Look at who you are today and what do I need? Well, it's also interesting. The distractions of appetite interfere with the primary process. And I think that's interesting because the an appetite is when you kind of I feel like people talk about appetite in terms of like you can lose your appetite mm. or you can gain an appetite. You can be stimulated to an appetite. So it's more, it's not just like a hunger. It's an appetite. It's, it's, it can be lost or gained. It can be brought on or turned off. So it's, it's to me, appetite, the word. It, you don't say, oh, I, I have a large appetite when you're starving. You say, I'm hungry. I'm starving. Right? When you're, when you're hiking and you go down to the river to take a bath in the spring and you bring a big tub down there and you try to make a fire and boil some water and have a hot bath and you thought it was going to take an hour, but it took four you don't just have an appetite. You're fucking hungry. Okay? Now that may or may not have happened to us. We ate some Skittles and <laughs> sunflower <laughs> seeds on the way back. But, um... I think I felt worse after that. Those were toxic to me. Those well, were and not we hadn't, my elixir. <laughs> we hadn't eaten any breakfast. So we had... The last time we ate was the night before. And obviously... I mean, you can do fasting, but... Only when, again, it's when it's your tonic, when it's your elixir. It, Don't fast when no, I know. you're I, I'm pregnant getting or off track. already I wanna, sick. Or I want to get back to this. I took us <laughs> off track with that. Well, I was going with it, dude. I, I, I know, took but, us over there. I, would. I know. So, the distractions of... See, the distractions, right? <laughs> The distractions of appetite interfere with the primary process. There are many bones on the road. Juicy, nice, interesting, savagely exciting bones. And I was thinking about how 
You know how we were talking about how, like, when you think about what your life is going to be like when you're getting old and you're, like, getting close to death. You want to be able to look back on your life and be happy about what your life was. Mm -hmm. Or at least the decisions you made. And I think that that ability to do that is mostly in avoiding the appetites that aren't going to make your mission work. Like, Mm -hmm. once we've decided that, once you've decided you want to be in a monogamous relationship for the rest of your life, then you are closing off a bunch of appetites because they're just, you know that if you pursued those for your whole life, you get to the end and you wouldn't be very satisfied with that. Mm. So you've made a decision that those appetites aren't really going to be what you're going to pursue because then it allows you to focus your energy mm-hmm. and really pursue the path that you want and put all, all your effort into it, into your primary process of self-knowledge and understanding yourself so you're able to get a lot more done by not being spread out chasing around the appetites and the kumquat pie and the roasted chicken legs that are on the path right he got distracted the dog was going off and forgot the purpose so you have to figure out what what distractions in your own life are causing you to not remember your primary purpose or your or develop one or whatever mm. and I think it's just the old basically I always thought of it as like I, th- I think in the Bible it talks about how you should run from temptation like you should <laughs> shouldn't just see it and uh, be like I'm not going to do it you should like get away from it and distance yourself from these appetites. And if you have things that are vices that are causing you problems that you know are, but you're just addicted to them, people, substances, patterns of behavior, habits, you have to run from them. You have to put a lot of distance from them. Otherwise, they suck you in every time, and then you're like, shit, here I am again. (laughs) So it has to, it's... It's hard to um, avoid those uh, mm-hmm. too much or even a little bit of a good thing at the wrong time can cause a gross loss of consciousness. Then instead of a sudden rush of wisdom, we walk about like an absent-minded professor muttering, Now, where was I? It takes weeks, sometimes months, to recover from these distractions of ours. Although his gut is satisfied, the soul's work is not. We begin to understand that this process of remaining conscious, and particularly of not giving in to distracting appetites, while trying to elicit psychic connection, is a long process and one that is difficult to hold on to. We see the wily little dog trying his damnedest. There are elements of everyone's psyche that are devious, trickerish, and scrumptious. These elements are anti-consciousness. They thrive by keeping things dark and exciting, 
Sometimes it is hard to remind ourselves that we are holding out for the excitement of the light. The dark stranger, another version of the natural predator of the psyche that opposes consciousness. Because of this naturally occurring opposer in the psyche of all persons, even the most healthy psyche is susceptible to losing its place. Remembering the real task and reminding ourselves over and over in practically mantra fashion will bring us back to consciousness. Reminding ourselves over and over in practically mantra fashion, that makes me think of meditation, that it's the practice of meditation is just coming back. And then that made me think of this year's goals work that way, that you just need to keep coming back to them, that each day or each week or each month you say, you know, how close am I getting to my goal? What am I doing to get to that goal? And doing that mantra of doing the things that you need to do or reminding yourself to do those things so that you can reach your goals instead of getting distracted by the treats. And I think that's why a lot of people share that writing down your goals and being very specific on how you can achieve those goals and what are the steps and then putting those steps into slots like for example today on my phone it reminded me that we needed to record the podcast so that I have enough time to edit it right so the mantra of reminding yourself of what your original intention was before you got lost in the projections from society because what I see happening is when I'm by myself and I'm working on my your goals and I'm over there meditating on what I want to manifest, I'm much more clear-headed than when I'm hustling through my day and forgetting all those little details of what I needed to do. Right. And that's why ritual and routine can be really helpful in making sure that you check those boxes. Like my end of the year goal is to be able to meditate for a full hour. Well, then each day I need to be meditating, right? So then having my ritual to do that in the morning when I get up to check that off the list to make sure that I'm reaching my goals is crucial. But having that mantra and having that rhythm helps us stick with it. And I think that almost anyone who's successful can say that, that it was this coming back to this project or this idea that I was manifesting that led to my success. Right. They didn't just go off and never come back and then all of a sudden that thing that they never worked on manifested. No, they had to come back a lot over and over and even when it was tough. Because if you try to skip over the part of your project that's really difficult, it's not going to get done. It'll just still sit there and wait at that spot. It's like a road. Like Mm -hmm. if you just get out of your car because there's a roadblock and go look at the scenery and go on a hike and go on a picnic, well, when you come back to the car, you're still going to be at the same spot. Don't expect that you're going to be over that hump. So I think part of that meditation can be letting yourself go out and go have a drink with friends or go and do something that's not specific towards your path or whatever project you're manifesting. But then again, allowing yourself to come back 
and remembering that mantra of coming back to where you were. Because I think some people can get stuck in like, okay, so I need to be like always on, always focused. But then you're going to get distracted by a treat maybe a few days later than most people. But then you're never going to come back because you've created this negative feedback loop for how you were working before that it was painful and you weren't giving your you weren't giving yourself space to relax and to be like the ocean where the tide goes in and it goes out that there are times of work and then there's times of play so that's why it's a mantra and a meditation because nothing's constant things are more commonly stagnant and wave-like so the more you can embrace that and accept it, because I think a lot of people look at this quote and think like, oh, I have to be perf perfect. I have to, you know, be always every second working on my project and then it will happen. No, the idea is narrow down what you want to have happen and then make rituals and habits to make that happen. Do those things. And when you're not, make sure you have a mantra to remind yourself of what you wanted to do, which is why writing it down, writing down your like mission statement for I want to be able to meditate for an over an hour by the end of this year because I want to be able to control my mind and be present with it. Having that kind of statement allows you to solidify the the mantra in your head so that you can repeat it back to yourself. But if it's a fuzzy mantra like I don't know, I wanted to be able to sit still for a while. Well, then your brain, you sit still for two seconds and it says, okay, it's been a while, we're done. Good job. Yeah. So you have to be specific with whatever your mantra is because if your mantra is loosey-goosey, then you're not going to get a nice ebb and flow of productivity and then release and and rela relaxation. You're going to get this dissonance every time that that naturally happens where you're like, oh, I don't want to be working on this right now. And then when you're finally relaxing, you're going to be like, oh, I wish I was working right now. And it just keeps switching back and forth from that. So you're getting this dissonance of not accepting where you're at. So as soon as you accept where you're at, set the goals, set the mantra, and initiate that meditation on it, then over time, that's what a lot of people... I've seen through social media and friends and family is over time, the more you meditate, the more it manifests whatever you're meditating, even if that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So this January, again, is very tense because we have a lot to manifest this year. So you have to be very intentional with whatever you're meditating on and whatever you're manifesting because pretty quickly here it'll happen. Mm -hmm. Achieving Fierceness the instinctive psyche has learned to curb itself, prioritize, and focus. It refuses to be diverted. It is now intent. The stranger can be personified by an actual person in the outer world or by a negative complex within. There is always something in the psyche that tries to rob us of the names. There are many name robbers in the outer world also. In the story, the little dog fights for its life. Sometimes the only way we learn to hold on to our deeper knowing is because a stranger jumps out. Then we are forced to fight for what we find. Then we are forced to fight for what we find dear. 
Fight to be serious about what we are about. Fight to develop past our superficial spiritual motives. Which Robert Bly calls the desire to feel groovy. Fight to hold on to the deeper knowledge. Fight to finish what we have begun. The Interior Woman Sometimes women become tired and cranky while waiting for their mates to understand them. The women say, why can't they know what I think, what I want? Women become fatigued with asking this question. Yet there is a solution to this dilemma. A solution which is efficient and effective. If a woman wants a mate who is responsive in this way, she will reveal to him the secret of women's duality. She will tell him about the interior woman, that one who, add, added to herself, makes two. She does this by teaching her mate to ask her two deceptively simple questions that will cause her to feel seen, heard, and known. The first question is this, what do you want? Almost everyone asks some version of this, just as a matter of course. But there is yet one more essential question, and that is, what does your deeper self desire? If one overlooks a woman's dual nature and takes a woman at face value, one is in for a big surprise, for when the woman's wildish nature rises from her depths and begins to assert itself, she often has interests, feelings, and ideas which are quite different from those she expressed before. When a woman consults her own dual nature, she is in the process of looking, canvassing, taking, sound, taking soundings of material that is beyond consciousness, and therefore often astonishing in content and process, and most often very valuable. To love a woman, the mate must also love her untamed nature. The most valued lover, the most valuable parent, the most valued friend, and the most valuable wilder man is the one who wishes to learn. Those who are not delighted by learning, those who cannot be enticed into new ideas or experiences, cannot develop past the road post they rest at now. If there is but one force which feeds the root of pain, it is the refusal to learn beyond this moment. So she mentions the wilder man, the one who wishes to learn. And that's the common theme between the wild woman and the wild man and, and just humans, specifically, is our curiosity of wanting to learn, that craving for learning and understanding. And so to me, what I see through this chapter is how you can embrace this wildish aspect of our psyches by accepting and allowing yourself to be curious and accepting that that's part of who you are and, in fact, that that is crucial to what makes humans humans. And so not only accepting it, but accepting that that is like our whole... That's like our thing, to yeah. be curious. Yeah. 
And I think animals are too, but because we are conscious, it's like taking it to a level of manifestation because we're aware of it. So then therefore we can manifest things out in the universe rather than be more directed by nature. We can direct nature, but we are nature. So it's kind of a paradox. Right. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that uh, the most valuable friendships, lover, just the, the most valuable, the most valuable relationships in general. She's getting at is those with people who want to learn about you. And I think ooh, that's pretty much the foundation of our relationship. On our first date, we talked for eight hours straight <laughs> because we were just, we were curious. We wanted to learn and we didn't get tired of it. And then we basically just spent the next year and a half learning more and more. And it's weird when you find someone that you can endlessly be curious about because then that to me is what love is. It's, you, if you really love someone, then you're, the best sign of that is that you want to learn about them as much as you can and that you're never bored by learning about them. Mm -hmm. And if you do feel that way, then if you do feel bored, then it, they might not be the one for you. Or I've found it, maybe it's bringing up something in me that I don't want to face, and so I'm projecting it onto you, like I don't want to hear about what you're talking about, because mm -hmm. it makes me feel weird. Because you don't want to learn the bad things, yeah, or the scary things. Uh, but if you do, then you get kind of what we did, which was a positive feedback loop of, we did learn about some, of the, like I learned about some of the bad things I was doing, and changed. But I was grateful because you helped me learn about my nutrition and I had to give up things and sacrifice things that I wanted. Mm -hmm. But what I found instead was a higher version of myself, a healthier version of myself. So I'm actually grateful to you for giving me that painful knowledge mm -hmm. of that what I was doing was wrong and, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, and the way you did it was not by just being like, you're wrong, <laughs> but you showed me through your own behavior a better example, a good example of how I could be. Tastier dish. Yeah, better food. And when someone can do that for you, then uh, take care of that relationship because that's very rare. The mate for the wildish woman is the one who has a soulful tenacity and endurance. One who can send his own instinctual nature to peek under the tent of a woman's soul life and comprehend what he sees and hears there. The good match is the man who keeps returning to try to understand, who does not let himself be deterred by the sideshows on the road. And this obviously brings up loyalty. Which, um, people, I think that might be one of people's most fearful topics. Loyalty? Oh no. But what if, what if things go bad? What if they're, what if, you know, I think it causes anxiety 
that at least I can even see that in myself where it because it implies you have to sacrifice and limit your own appetites Mm. to be loyal Mm -hmm. and so people I think are maybe questioning if it's worth it because in our culture it's all appetites all the time Mm -hmm. so this is probably the scariest thing which is why a lot of uh, young people are not really doing well with relationships right now think they're they're having like the least amount of sex ever of any generations (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is not good it's sad sex is awesome so if they're afraid to be in relationships that provide that kind of experience then I think it might be this loyalty thing where people don't want to get burned they don't want to be loyal because if they're loyal and the other person isn't then it hurts Mm -hmm. it's a risk yeah so then you're kind of shy about it so you're not willing to really take that risk and possibly get your heart broken but uh, I've always took that risk Mm -hmm. I do (laughs) (laughs) try to end up together yeah and talking about loyalty made me think of the clotter ring which is Celtic and I believe it was used even as engagement rings and the way you wear it shows if you're single or married or engaged or what have you. And on the ring, there's a heart and a crown on top of it and two hands holding the heart, which is the band. And the heart represents love and the crown represents loyalty and the hands are friendship. And those have always been my three foundational aspects of a not only a loving relationship with other people but also with myself that I have to be my own friend and be my own lover and be loyal to myself and I've had this clutter ring even when I'm single because you just flip it around and it faces inward which is funny because the, the crown faces inward and I've enjoyed this, the symbolism it holds to always remind myself of those three things because I think that's part of the wild woman aspect that I found first because I've had this ring for maybe six years now and it brought back that, that groundedness, that, that what will make you centered and whole. And so love, friendship, and loyalty is what I think makes all humans whole and feel safe and truly comfortable. So again, we were talking about this earlier, that it kind of seems like a paradox that you'd need to love yourself to be able to love someone else, but you do. That's how it works. But you also need to be then loyal to yourself because that's what comes with being in love with yourself because you can't be half in love with yourself. You can't be like, I sometimes take care of myself, you know, part-time. Right. And you have to be loyal to yourself because when you're loyal to yourself, then you trust yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you trust yourself, then you can trust your decisions to trust other people. Mm -hmm. So it's this cycle of trust that keeps building. And one of my favorite quotes is the best 
way to figure out if you can trust someone is to trust them. <laughs> See what happened. Yeah. So the wildish task of the man is to find her true names and not to misuse that knowledge to seize power over her, but rather to apprehend and comprehend the numinous substance from which she is made, to let it wash over him, amaze him, shock him, even spook him, and to stay with it, and to sing out her name over her. It will make her eyes shine, it will make his eyes shine. But, lest one rest too soon, there is yet another aspect to naming the dualities, a more fearsome one yet, but one essential to all lovers. While one side of a woman's dual nature might be called life, life's twin sister is a force named death. The force called death is one of the two magnetic forks of the wild nature. If one teams to name the dualities, one will eventually bump right up against the bald skull of the death nature. They say only heroes can stand it. Certainly the wildish man can stand it. Absolutely the wildish woman can stand it. They are in fact wholly transformed by it. So now please meet Skeleton Woman. So that's the end of chapter four, The Mate, Union with the Other. And as with all the other episodes on the cultivation of the wildwoman.wordpress.com, I have links to the quotes that are used in that episode so that you can either follow along while you're listening or to be able to review and uh, study with. Or if you have a message for Rachel, you can also contact her on there, too. Mm-hmm. And that's at cultivationofthewildwoman.wordpress.com And if you wanted to contact me, you can reach me at cultivationofthewildwoman at gmail.com